Our holy and gracious God, we thank you for this incredible gift of your word. We thank you for giving us scripture so that we can know you truly and so that we can have life. And so we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open your word to us. Help us to know you. Help us to know ourselves. Help us to know what you are calling us to. Use your word to open our hearts. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. So we continue on in the book of Genesis, and we've been calling this series The Mess of Life and God's Unstoppable Plan. Now, in calling it that, I'm making the assumption that you know something about the mess of life. I mean, the mess of life is, is the stuff that, that we see in the paper week after week after week. Just this past week, a whole slew of break-ins and robberies and stuff, like a, like a handful of them. Or yet another account of sexual assault. Or, or yet another kind of violent act against someone else. And that's just on the local level. On the, on the national level, it's stuff like government shutdown. It's stuff like floods out in Colorado and droughts in other places. But the thing is, the mess of life doesn't just stay at that level. It just doesn't stay at the level of the newspaper. It comes right down into your family and your house. The mess of life is is stuff like wondering how you're going to keep food on the table if you can't find a job that makes a, a decent livable wage. And stuff like wondering what's going to happen with your teenager. It looks like they're kind of pulling away from you and you're wondering how to restore that. It, it's stuff like you know, that, that sibling that you haven't talked to in five years or ten years or fifteen years. Life is full of stuff that is causing us fear and anxiety and worry and destruction and heartache. You know about the mess of life. But what about God's unstoppable plan? I'm assuming that you know about the mess of life because every single one of us uh, has that in our lives. Every single one of us has that confronting us day after day after day. But what about God's plan? Do you know God's plan? We've been going back to the beginning of the Bible, the first book, in the book of Genesis, because we're laying a foundation for what God is doing, what he set out to do from the very beginning and what he's going to do as he continues his work. We see in the Bible the solution to the mess of life. The solution is God's unstoppable plan. So as we go through the book of Genesis, that's really what we're doing here. We're learning what God's doing. And specifically, in these couple weeks here, we're focusing in on the person of Abraham, the man that God selected to carry forward his great unstoppable plan. So this morning we're continuing uh, the story of Abraham from Genesis 20 and 21. I invite you to turn there if you haven't already done so in your, in your uh, Bibles. You'll want to have those open in front of you. And this is really uh, tracing the history of Abraham because it's laying the foundation, the root of what God is going to do in the world, how he's going to make all things right. And today we're focusing in on the most important promise that Abraham is going to experience in his life. The promise that he is going to have a son by his wife, Sarah. So we come to the text this morning and we immediately are presented with a crisis related to this promise. So we're going to see three movements related to this promise of a child. And the first movement, it really is the crisis. The promise is threatened. It's put in jeopardy. Now, before we jump right into the text, we have to remember that the last thing we heard about Abraham and Sarah is that Abraham's almost 100, Sarah's almost 90, and God has promised them that within the year, Sarah's going to have a son, and they're going to name him Isaac. So we've had the promise for the past 25 years of Abraham's life that he is going to have a son, 
And finally, now that there's absolutely no hope for it, God gives them a specific timeline. By the end of the year, Sarah's going to have this child. But then as we get into our text this morning, things get a little bit dicey. Look at the beginning of Genesis chapter 20. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Now this is a problem. This foreign king is taking Sarah into his harem. Now we already know that it's going to take a miracle of God for this 90-year-old woman, post-menopausal Sarah, to have a son. And yet now God's promise is threatened even if he does that miracle that he said he would do. So if Abimelech sleeps with Sarah... And then God does this incredible thing of giving Sarah a son. The question of paternity is always going to be out there. Who is the father of this child? Already in the text, Abraham has had a son by a different mother. Through Sarah's servant, Hagar, he had Ishmael. But God said, that's not the son that I'm telling you about. This is a a son through Sarah named Isaac. But now it looks like Sarah might possibly have a child with a different father than Abraham. Abimelech might be the father. And this is a, is a great example of the mess that we get ourselves into, right? This is the mess of life. One man takes another man's wife because the first man said that, well, that's my sister. Now, it's noteworthy to see that this whole problem is caused by Abraham. It's God's chosen instrument. It's his fault. Abraham acted in fear instead of trusting that God was going to take care of him. And the result is that this great promise that by the end of the year, he's going to have a son by his wife Sarah, that great promise is now put in jeopardy. The whole thing's threatened. I mean, you, you read this and you've been following the story of Abraham through these chapters and you, you want to kind of grab Abraham and shake him and say, you're being your own worst enemy. What are you doing here? If Abimelech sleeps with them, then, then you're never going to know that you're the father of that child. You are, you're taking this whole thing that God has told you about and, and you're just throwing it away. Why are you giving away your wife at the very time when she's supposed to be getting pregnant? So in the first movement here, we see the crisis. It looks like the promise is just totally put in jeopardy. In the second movement, though, we see what God does to protect the promise. Look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. So God is going to intervene. He, He comes and he confronts this foreign king with the truth. She's married to someone else, and you've taken her. Abimelech, though, of course, defends himself. Verse 4. Now, Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister, and didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Now, to the relief of us as readers who have been following this story, the narrator right off the bat in verse 4 tells us that Abimelech has not slept with Sarah. So if God keeps his promise, and if Sarah has a son within the year, it's not going to be Abimelech's child. It's going to be Abraham's child. So this is a relief to us. God responds in verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now, Return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. 
But if you do not return there, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. So this is something of a relief. God is confirming Abimelech's innocence, but more importantly, it's God's hand that we see behind this. It's actually God and not Abimelech who's keeping this promise pure, who's keeping Sarah pure. God has intervened in the situation even when Abraham's actions have put the whole thing in jeopardy. And so we see what Abimelech does next. Verse 8. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials And when he told them what had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, save me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you, live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So understandably, as this little part of the story wraps up, understandably, Abimelech is upset with Abraham. I mean, Abraham admits that he acted faithlessly. I mean, Abimelech here in this scene really is the upright one, right? He is doing everything correctly, and Abraham's the one who's acting faithlessly and in fear. So the contrast between the two is, is truly remarkable. Abimelech shows that he actually fears God. After he hears this statement by God in this dream, he and all of his household are terrified. They fear God. And on the other hand, Abraham didn't really trust that God was going to protect him. He didn't show kind of active, functional fear of God. So Abraham, who was supposed to be the one person through whom all the nations on the earth are blessed, bringing them life, is actually about to bring death on Abimelech and his whole family. But apart from that contrast, which really is notable, the more important part of the story is that God intervenes. The most important part of this episode is that it is God who saves the day. I mean, it's it's incredible mercy of God that he doesn't say anything of uh, reproach to Abraham in this story. He doesn't say anything about what Abraham has done because it's his story. It's his work and it's his promise. And so he is going to make sure it comes true. So God intervenes, Sarah's purity is maintained, the promised line is maintained, Abimelech's innocence is maintained, and in the end, Abraham can intercede to bring life back to Abimelech's line. So we see that God is protecting the promise even when his people are acting in ways that jeopardize the promise. I picture God in in this story kind of like a, a parent helping a child with a project. So a couple weeks ago, uh, my three-year-old son and I got one of those little birdhouse projects, and we, we were going to put it together. Uh, together. 
Um, so, you know, we got it out, and he has a little hammer, and it's got some nails and everything, and pre-cut pieces and all that. So I explained to him what we were building, and then I sat down next to him, and, and I let him do the work, because I wanted this to be a learning opportunity for him. Of course, I also wanted, in the end, to have a birdhouse, so I was going to intervene if he did anything wrong. So I set up the pieces for him, I put the nails in, I give him the hammer, and he starts pounding away. And he did a great job. But when it came to points when it looked like the whole project was going to get ruined, if he was going to do something like maybe smash the whole front end in, I was going to stop him from doing that. I was going to carefully make sure all the pieces came together, and in the end, we were able to put this birdhouse out on our window. I kind of think that's what God is doing with Abraham. I mean, God is telling Abraham what's going to happen. He's giving him this promise, telling him that he is going to be a blessing and then he wants Abraham to go and to be his instrument doing this. When Abraham makes this big mistakes, God knows what's happening, and he's right there to intervene to make sure that the whole project isn't ruined. God, in his grace, is with Abraham every step of the way. God's promise depends on God, not on Abraham. So in the first uh, movement here, we see the promise is put in jeopardy. In the second movement, we see that God is protecting the promise. And then the third and the final movement, we finally see that this promise is fulfilled. Chapter 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is a great moment in the life of Abraham. God's promise fulfilled finally. After 25 years of Abraham's life, from when he was 75 to when he was 100, he was waiting for this promise. And for half of the book of Genesis so far, we as readers have been waiting for God to do what he said he would do. But I don't know if you caught this, but it, it seems so understated. I mean, with all the buildup, all the anticipation, you'd expect a little bit more than seven short verses that mostly, you know, two of them are Sarah speaking and one of them, a couple of them are what Abraham is doing. You'd expect a little bit more from this. It's just all this buildup and then suddenly they have a child, Isaac is born. And there was a huge buildup apparently uh, months ago, several months ago, because there was going to be a, a baby born to the royal family. I, I really don't care much about the whole uh, Prince William royal family stuff. I, you know, when there was this, all this hoopla last year, whatever it was, when, when they got married, the big royal wedding, and people were watching this. And none of that really interested me until I saw a little clip from the wedding ceremony itself, and I saw who was performing. I thought, hey, that's the Archbishop of Canterbury. That's really interesting. Everyone else is taking pictures and, and looking at the dresses and stuff like that. I don't care about that. But even I knew that they were going to have a baby this summer. You, you couldn't go down the grocery store aisle. You couldn't go through the, the checkout without seeing them on the cover of these magazines. You've got articles, you've got speculation, all this stuff going on. Now imagine with all of that attention, all of that anticipation, once the baby's finally born, you don't get a front page picture, you don't get a full length article, you just get a little blurb in the announcement section. I mean, that's kind of what it feels like here. I mean, the promise of a child and the fact that Abraham still doesn't have a child when he's almost 100 has been the driving force of the narrative for almost 10 chapters of Genesis. And then we get to chapter 21, and it's just the Lord does what he said he would do, and, and they have a child. Isaac is born. 
It's almost as if the narrator is telling us that, that we shouldn't be surprised. This is simply God doing what he said he would do. So yes, of course, we should be astonished that a 90-year-old woman who was previously infertile and who has gone through menopause already is having a child. We should be in awe of God's work, but we shouldn't be surprised that God has kept his promise. Of course he's keeping his promise. That's what God does. When God makes a promise, he's faithful to do it. And that's really what the text is emphasizing here. If you look at verse 1 there, the, the two parallel clauses that describe what's going on here. God is the one who's the actor, and God is doing exactly what God said he would do. So, the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. God's the actor, according to his promise. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. God's the actor, and he did what he promised. That's the emphasis of the text. So this really wraps up the story nicely. God faithfully fulfills the promise that he gave. God is in control of this whole thing from start to finish. And it really is a nice resolution to the story here, this, this part from chapter 21 that we read, because we see that God did what he said he would do. He gives Abraham and Sarah a child named Isaac. Abraham does what he's told to do. He circumcises the child as a sign of God's promise, names him Isaac. And Sarah has opportunity to praise God and speak of his grace, saying, "People, God has given me laughter, and everyone who hears is going to laugh with me. So for now, in this story that has been messy, all the pieces right now are nicely tied together. We can wrap up the whole story, put a little bow on it, and say that is a great story. God intervenes to make his promise come true. But there's more to this story than just an old man and an old woman who've always wanted a child finally getting their child. There's more to the story than that. See, this is actually a crucial link in God's unstoppable plan. Remember, that's the the focus of what we're looking at in Genesis. We know the mess of life, we see the mess of life in Genesis, but more importantly than that, we're starting to learn about God's unstoppable plan. God's unstoppable plan starts in the very beginning with his decision to create. And so we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, God forming and designing the world perfectly. He wanted the world to be the place where people could experience the blessing of living with God as king. But then immediately, the mess of life starts getting in. Genesis 3, humans disobey him and introduce sin into the world, and the whole thing starts to unravel and fall apart. But... In his grace, God does not give up on his original plan. He doesn't give up on the dream, the reason that he created in the first place. His plan continues. But as the story of Genesis progresses, we see that human sin gets worse and worse and worse. It brings the whole world to the breaking point. So God sends the judgment of the flood to bring the world back so that people can know what it's like to live with God as king. Again, in his grace, he doesn't give up on them, but he takes Noah and his family, he saves them from the flood, And he starts fresh with his great plan. But of course, the sin cycle continues. Immediately after they get on the boat, the sin cycle continues. And so God, again, has to do something. Because the problem is that people have just totally lost a sense of who God is. They are totally ignorant of God. They're walking around hopelessly in ignorance. They don't know God, and so they don't have hope. And so, of course, they're acting in rebellion to him. Of course, they're not doing, uh, of course, they're not living with him as their king. But again, in his grace, God does not give up on it, but he decides to do something about it. So, in our text, we see that he's pushing forward on his plan by choosing one man, Abraham, to show the whole world what it means to live with God as king, to live under God's blessing. 
And so that's what's so important about the text we have. Abraham has to have a child, and his child has to have a child, and that line has to continue so this promise of, of offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky is going to be held true so that the whole world can see what it means to live with God as king. And really, that's the progression of the Old Testament. God is choosing this one family, Abraham's family, the people of Israel, people we know as the Jews, to show who he is to the world and to demonstrate what it means to live under God's blessing, to live with his rules under his command. But of course, if you read the Old Testament, on the one hand, you're seeing who God is. You're getting a picture of his holiness, that he is totally other than this, that he is pure. You see a picture of God's power time and time again, uh, delivering his people, rescuing his people. You see God's justice, blind eyes, not, not tilted scales, but pure, true justice. You get a picture of God's mercy time after time after time, forgiving his people, giving them another chance, forgiving them, rescuing them, giving them another chance. But even as we're learning that about God and his character, at the same time we're learning about human nature. We're learning that, that something more is needed here. The people of Israel, time after time after time, reject God. They reject his plan, and they don't live in that place under God's good rule. And so we learn through the Old Testament that, that something more is necessary here. And we learn that God does not give up. What we need, what humans need, is a rescuer. What we need is a new heart. And so God speaks through his messengers, the prophets, and says that he is going to send someone who will be that rescuer. He's going to send someone who's going to truly embody what it means to live under God's good rule, to show what that means and to rescue his people. So through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others, he says that a rescuer is coming. And of course, that rescuer is going to come from Abraham's family. Of course, that rescuer is going to be Jewish because like God said back in Genesis 12, when he first spoke to Abraham, Abraham is going to be a blessing to all the families in the world. It's not just about the Jews, but starting with them and moving out. This rescuer, we find out as we move into the New Testament, is named Jesus. And we learn that he is God's own son. Jesus is God's solution to the whole mess of life. Everything that has gone wrong up to this point is answered in Jesus. Jesus is the one who teaches us truly how to live in God's kingdom. And that the sin in our heart that, that caused guilt, that, that kept us out of God's kingdom, that made us turn away again and again and again, and, and that brought a penalty, brought guilt upon us so that we didn't deserve to live in God's kingdom, that was removed because that rescuer took care of your sins on the cross. That's why we have a cross in the front of our buildings, because Jesus is the one who has set us free, and in him we learn what it means to live in God's good rule, to live in God's kingdom. That's the message that Jesus was proclaiming. So God's unstoppable plan from the very beginning was to tell people how to live in his kingdom, for people to be able to experience the blessing of life with God. Jesus is the one who makes that possible. But here's where we get kind of an odd turn in God's plan. Because all of a sudden, God chooses to use normal people, flawed people. So we have the great rescuer in Jesus, who is the solution to all this problem, all this mess. And then Jesus commissions his followers to go and to tell other people what it means to live in God's kingdom, 
to live with God as king. So incredibly, those who are Jesus' followers are those through whom God is expanding this kingdom. And that's where you and I come in. Somewhere along the line, someone, usually many multiple people that God has used, has helped you and I to see that life isn't found in running away from God and trying to find our own little way, irreligion, rejecting God, nor is life found in trying to follow a bunch of rules and try to be really, really good, religion. Life instead is found in the story of God's rescue, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what enables us to live in God's kingdom. So life is found in that story of what God has done, starting way back in Abraham's day and being complete in Jesus. What this means is that God has given you and I a new story. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what God has done to complete his rescue in Jesus, that gospel is now our story. And incredibly, God chooses to make us part of that story. The story continues on through us God's kingdom grows as his power moves in people's heart through ordinary, imperfect, normal people like you and me. Now, we've begun a journey as a church, getting back to the core purpose that God has given us. When we put our trust in Jesus, we become those followers of Jesus who are called to make more followers of Jesus. That's what this kingdom expansion is about. It's God working through his people to grow the sense of living under God's good rule. And that's what we are setting out to do. Our mission is to do that, to make more and stronger disciples of Jesus. But there's a problem. Sometimes it feels like we're our own worst enemies in this whole thing. I mean, like Abraham, who gives away his wife right when she's supposed to get pregnant and bear a son to him, we say or do something that's actually going to get in the way of someone trusting in Jesus. I heard a story uh, a while ago about a, a driver who got pulled over and the man thought it was just a routine traffic stop, but, but then the cop came over and dragged him out of the car and put cuffs on him and put his face kind of against the, the, the uh, car on the outside. He's wondering, what on earth is going on? And a couple minutes later, the other officer had run the plates and run the license and everything, and, and he started apologizing. He uncuffed the guy and said, sir, I, I'm sorry, I, I've been following you for a little while now, and you, you've been driving really uh, aggressively. I mean, you've been, someone drives slowly in front of you, you get right up on their tail, you start honking, shouting at them. You missed a light back there, and you started pounding your dashboard. A guy accidentally cut you off and you started flipping him off. And, and then I saw that you had one of those little fish bumper stickers. And I saw you had one of those crosses in the mirror. I assumed that the car must be stolen. <laughs> Got to be extra careful if you ever drive the church van. <laughs> but I've been there. I mean, not with being pulled over and that kind of thing, but... <laughs> easy. <laughs> But you say or you do something and you think, oh man, well, that goes the hope for that person. They're never going to become a Christian because they saw me do that or they heard me say that. Or you leave a conversation and you think, oh, I should have said that, I should have said that, but I said this and the whole thing's gone now. It's really discouraging. But here's why I have hope for the church nonetheless. Because God saves the day. God's plan is unstoppable because of God. And the story of Abraham gives me a lot of hope because we see Abraham acting in fear instead of trusting God and and he's putting the whole promise in jeopardy and yet God intervenes and saves the day. It's God who makes sure that God's promise comes true. What we learn through the whole story of the Bible is that God is in control. 
That means that we can trust him. Today, the same thing is true. God's plan is not going to be ruined because you and I are imperfect Christians. It's not going to be ruined because you and I aren't always saying the exact right thing at the exact right time. You and I are going to fail. We're going to make mistakes. But even when we put obstacles in someone's path, God's plan is unstoppable. Even when you and I do stupid things that threaten to make the gospel repulsive to those who need Jesus desperately, God intervenes to bring people to himself anyway. God's plan is unstoppable because it depends upon God. And that is why we can set a bold course as a church, because we trust that it's God's work. He's going to do it, and we are called to be part of that. He has commissioned us to go and to make more followers of him. And so we can trust that if it's his plan, it's going to succeed, because it's his power. This past summer, I I challenge you to, to look through your life, think about the people you interact with on a normal basis, and to pick one person who's not yet a follower of Jesus and start praying for them regularly. And start praying for yourself that that God would show you how you can be a gospel conduit toward that person. I hope you're taking that seriously. I've got my little list of of three names. I handed out cards uh, several months ago. There's still uh, some on the tables out there. If you haven't done that, you can pick up a card, write a name on that, and just start praying every day for that one person and for your witness toward them. I started doing this myself. I've got my three names on there, and I don't pray for them every day. I'm not perfect about it, but I pray often for those three names. And in my growth group, I started telling those people who they are, and and we start working through, what's it going to take for them to understand the gospel? How can I live my life in such a way that they can understand the gospel more clearly? And think about what it's going to look like if even a small percentage of the people that we are praying for begin to put their faith in Jesus. It's going to totally transform who we are as a community of faith because it's going to give us a chance to see God's great work and to participate in it. We get to start seeing new life here in our midst, in our community, hurting people who are finding the healing of God through the gospel, people who have no hope for tomorrow suddenly gaining the hope and joy of the gospel. So rather than hearing more and more about the mess of life when we go and read the paper, another CSC, another robbery, another assault, another trial, rather than hearing more and more about the mess of life in our community, we want to hear more and more about God's unstoppable plan in our community. We want to hear about the gospel transforming lives, changing fathers and mothers and children and students and teachers and businesses and schools. We want to see the gospel having an impact on our community. We want to see God's great work here now, among us, in our community. God is today accomplishing his unstoppable plan. And it is effective because of him. God is doing great things through normal people. You don't have to be perfect to be part of God's plan. I mean, look at Abraham. Read any of the stories in the Bible, and you find that these are imperfect people. Every single one of the people that you are going to read about in the Bible is an imperfect person, save one, and that's Jesus. And he is the one who has already accomplished everything needed for God's plan to be effective. And so that means that we are free in all of our imperfection to go and to do exactly what Jesus has called us to do, to go out into our community and try to show them the power of the gospel, the light of the gospel. Let me give you just one easy example that's coming up, an easy opportunity. 
we're looking to launch a Kids Hope program at Foster Elementary School starting in January. There's actually a meeting about this. They'll give a lot more information next Sunday, October 13th, right after the service. But Kids Hope is, is a one-to-one mentoring program between people in our church and at-risk students and the schools. And this is a really easy way to make a really big impact on someone's life. I think about it, it's one hour of your week strategically spent to make an impact, strategically spent to help someone understand what the hope of the gospel is. You could help someone who's in, at risk of being the next story you read about in the paper, the next arraignment, the next trial, someone who's on that path, who has very little to look forward to their future. You can help them see that there is more. You can help them see that there is life in Jesus. And that's why we're doing this. We're doing this because we believe that God is calling us to make a difference, to make an impact. We truly want to be spreading the light of the gospel in our community. That's what we want to see happening. We want to see God's living under God's rule, his kingdom. We want to see him expanding it, expanding it, expanding it. We want to be part of that. Now, of course, it's not going to be a straight line. I mean, look at Abraham's story. It's not a straight line from God's promise to the birth of Isaac. There's all sorts of mess, all sorts of failures, all sorts of stuff going on. It's going to be messy. It's not going to be a nice straight upward trajectory. But because it's God's work and God's power, we can be totally confident. He is going to do exactly what he has set out to do. And that is good news. Please pray with me. Our great God, I thank you for the testimony in the Bible that time after time after time, you have been faithful to every single one of your promises. I thank you that we don't have to worry when we see that we're not perfect. We don't have to worry when we feel like we don't have anything to offer. Abraham didn't have a whole lot to offer. He made a couple mistakes. His son made a couple mistakes. Your people throughout the ages have made mistake after mistake. We as your church have made mistakes. Father, in your grace, overcome all of that. Overcome all of that to bring your gospel, to bring your kingdom increasingly to our community. Father, we thank you. Amen.